Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. And I have the privilege of reading the scripture this morning. It's a famous passage found in Matthew 5, verses 3 to 16. Jesus called his disciples up to the mountain to talk to them and This is the passage that begins with the Beatitudes. And Jesus said to them, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Morning again, church. So good to be with you. I want to also welcome, we're we're, uh, videoing this series for another church in our alliance family called uh, Bolton Alliance, so shout out to you guys. Uh, Glad you're with us. I uh, was thinking this week, I don't know uh, about in your house, uh, if you have kids, we have about 17 versions of the game Monopoly. Uh, in our house, and they just keep making them. It's it's a it's a marketing uh, wonderland. Um, but the purpose of the game, so if you sat down, you never played it before, and someone says, well, what's the purpose of the game? Well, um, you, you try to get around the board as many times as you can, collecting as much money as possible um, to acquire properties that you can build on, and then when other unfortunate souls, uh, who often you're related to or very close to in friendship, land on your, you delightfully um, squeal and collect the thousands of dollars from them. And the goal is to get as much money as you can and eventually to put them out um, of the game. Now, there's this thing in the corner called jail, uh, but it's not really core to the purpose of the game. You just don't want to go there. Um, but sometimes by chance, you can get this card that it's a get out of jail free card. So that if you happen to land in jail, you play the card and you're out. And the rest of the time, it just doesn't stop you from racing around and getting what you need. And I was thinking, that's how a lot of people view life and God. That life is this thing where we are racing around trying to get as much of whatever we say is most important to us. And, and there's this thing in the corner, and God may be there. Um, for some, we don't believe he's there at all. Uh, others, we feel like he's there, but mostly just wants to put us in jail. But, if we, but Jesus came, so we have this get-out-of-jail-free card, so that's good, so we don't have to worry about that. Um, and then we can just keep racing around doing what life uh, needs to be done. Or some of us who are, who are maybe more sophisticated in our beliefs about God will say, yeah, he's sort of the warden of the jail, but he's also kind of determining which chance card comes up to the top when it's your chance to draw it and whether it's going to be good or not. 
But whatever it is, many of us have this perspective and this view of God that God is over there in the corner and he doesn't really have much to do with the day in, day out, round and around part of my life. I read a book a little while ago by a, a, a parenting book by a guy named Tim Kimmel, and he was pointing out the fact that generally speaking as parents, what we are told we need to raise our kids for or the purpose that they are meant to have in life is these four things. Wealth, power, fame, and beauty. That these are basically the four things that our culture says, this is what you should point your kids towards. Or if you don't have kids, this is what you are supposed to be going towards. And we look at them and we sort of go, something in us goes, well, that doesn't sound that good. I wouldn't admit that out loud. I don't know if that's really true about me. But often when we think about education, why is education so important to us? Why are we putting kids in school, like when they're three days old, to start learning math or the abacus or whatever it is and all these early learning? Why? So they can do well in school. Why? So they can get a good job. What's a good job? Well, one that pays well. Why do they need to pay well? So they can be financially stable, which by judging by every, the world standard is, that's wealth. You can be financial stability. Enough to do whatever you want to do in life, enough to have when you retire. Why is education so important? Because wealth is so important. Power. Why do we think that the CEO's job is inherently more important and valuable than the one who runs the mailroom or works in the mailroom? Why? Because the CEO has more power, has more influence, has more say, has more ability, has more comfort, has more whatever. We are, and we know it's always better to climb up the ladder than to go down it. And we want that for ourselves and we want that for kids if we're pointing in that. And that's why we want them to get an education. Why? Because power is important to us. Fame. People say, well, I'm not really interested in fame. I don't need to be, you know, on the cover of a magazine. I just want to be recognized for the things that I do well. Like if I get passed over for a promotion and I'm actually the one who's been doing most of the work, I'm bothered by the fact that someone else received recognition that I didn't. It's just another word for fame. My kid's a way better singer. Why did they stick them at the back of the assembly? You know, I can't even see them in the video camera. They should be at the front. They've worked harder. Why didn't that? It's fame. It's recognition. Beauty. Why do we spend so much time in front of the mirror? Why? I've never seen an ugly picture of anyone on Facebook. Right? Which is good. It just means we are all beautiful. We can capture it in the right light, in the right, right? We, what, and, and we never put pictures of ourselves. And, and you get, you get, right? You get a, a photo of someone says, look at this photo at the wedding we were just at. Or look at this person, the photo of the two of us. Who do you look at? You. If you look good, you like it. Even if everybody else looks terrible, their eyes are shut, there's red eye. We're like, oh, that's amazing. Let's get it framed. If we don't look good, we don't like it. Right? Why do we spend so much time in front of the mirror? I was like, I was saying to my son, no, no, don't, don't, that's my hair product. Don't use that. I get mine on eBay. I can give you the ID number after if you want that. I don't just wake up like this, guys, okay? Why, why are we so, this is beauty, how we look and how, whether we can turn heads and how other people sort of recognize us, that these are the things actually that the world says is our purpose in life. And if you think about it, and I, this is actually sobering, if you stop and think about most of what you do in a week, it usually has to do with one of those four things. Round and around we go. What's interesting is, you know, many of us who are not in the millennial generation, sort of, sort of the generation after why they call them z's or millennials or whatever you know they're being criticized a lot for not having a sense of purpose in life well they don't know what they want to do with their life or oh, they're just playing video games or oh, they don't they don't seem interested in school they're just motivated and i think part of it is because they have looked at the previous generation's definition of purpose money power fame well beauty and says foul bogus that is an empty way 
to live your life. We're not interested. <laughs> we think, well, why, why, why do they have motivation? Because they look at the motivations and they say, you know what you had to sacrifice to get that? Me. So I'm not going to live my life like that. And yet, that generation is experiencing epidemic levels of anxiety, depression, and even suicide. Because if we're not going to live for that, what are we going to live for? We are a people with a crisis of purpose. Maybe even as you come in this morning, one of the things I've realized is that sometimes when those things begin to fail in our lives, when we are experiencing failure in our job, or maybe a lack of purpose or a sense of disillusionment, or financial instability, or perhaps fading beauty, or health, or a lack of recognition for what's going on in our lives, as difficult as that is, perhaps it is a moment that God is allowing in your life and my life to make us sit up and realize what you are living for is not worth giving your life for. There must be more. So if the good news of Jesus Christ, which we've been talking about these last few weeks, is good news at all, it has to address this issue of purpose, like a purpose in life. So we started with this whole premise and said, well, what is the good news? What is the news that as Christians we profess that has so changed our lives that we would celebrate and want to share it with other people? We said the good news in one word is Jesus. And we said, okay, we probably need more than one word of that. So we're going to take like 30 words over these few weeks and actually unpack that. And so the first week we talked about Jesus is who? God with us. It's right there, people. You don't even have to fill in the blanks. It's just right there. Jesus is God with us, that God is, is with us, has become one of us, that in Jesus we know that God isn't just with us. He's for us. God's not against us because he's with us. That Jesus is acceptance, that he comes to show us that God is love, that God is a father who has brought us into a household to experience the love of the family we were always meant to have. That Jesus is forgiveness. He, he saves us from sin. That he rescues us, not just from the bad stuff we do that we can be forgiven, but actually that frees us from the condition that we're all under of sin. And this week we want to celebrate the fact that Jesus is purpose, our purpose in life. And we can say that as sort of cliche and, and oh, Jesus, oh, we, we have a purpose in life because we have God. God gives me the sense of purpose. But it's more than just this sort of purpose to just keep doing my life and God's going to somehow bless me through the chance cards and keep me out of jail that there is actually, in Jesus, we find the reason for living, the reason we were, we were created in the first place. What's interesting, if you read the Gospels, the four biographies of Jesus, you'll find the word um, salvation or save comes up about 40 times in the four biographies of Jesus. Um, the word sin comes up about 60 times. But you know what word comes up over 120 times that we almost never associate with the good news of Jesus? Almost 120 times, mostly from the mouth of Jesus. The word kingdom. Kingdom. Jesus preached the kingdom of God. You go to the book of Acts. When the disciples of Jesus began to tell everybody about Jesus, it says they preached or proclaimed the kingdom of God. One time it says the Apostle Paul stayed in one place for three months arguing persuasively with a bunch of people who had never heard of Jesus, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. It says one time he stayed in a place two years preaching about the kingdom of God and talking about Jesus. 
The gospel Jesus preached to us was the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel the apostles preached to the world that transformed the world was about the kingdom. And the truth is, you and I don't have a clue what that means. Like if somebody asked you, what's the good news of Jesus? You probably wouldn't use the word kingdom. And if they said, what is the kingdom, the kingdom of God, or sometimes it says the kingdom of heaven, we would probably think, oh, uh, that's heaven. That's that place one day you get to go. The golden streets and golf courses or whatever. Just for the record, that would be hell for me. But I'm just saying, that's, okay, that's what we, what is the, what is the kingdom of of God. And it's actually something Jesus used more than anything else when it says he proclaimed. Look at, look at what it says at the beginning of in Matthew chapter 4, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. From that time on, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news, that's where we get the word gospel, of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. If we're going to know what good news is, we have to know what this thing kingdom is because it's the thing Jesus said was the core of the good news. And he says, repent. Now that's, again, repent is one of those bad words that we said about sin that just sounds like stuff you'd hear in church or whatever. When Jesus comes, this is really the first, the beginning of the things he started to say to people while he was doing all these amazing things for them, healing them and providing them food and rescuing them and bringing them back from the dead to life. He's saying, he's talking about the kingdom. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. What did that mean? It's like Jesus was saying, because repentance, as I said to you before, is not this sort of bad, you know, I'm a bad person thing. Repentance means to turn around, to stop what you're doing one way and to actually turn around. And it's like Jesus was using the word to say, stop the way you are living and turn around and listen. Because the kingdom of heaven is coming near. Something is coming, and if you don't stop and turn around, you will miss the fact that it is incredibly good news. What is the kingdom of God? The word, actually, the Greek word that kingdom comes from is the word basileia, uh, where, where we get the idea of the basilica, you know, St. Peter's Basilica in Rome kind of comes from that Greek word basileia. But when we, we translate it kingdom, now when we say kingdom, we think place, geography, yeah, Lord of the Rings stuff comes to our minds, like visuals, uh, 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 you know, city, but the word is probably best translated reign, R-E-I-G-H-N. The reign of God. The reign of heaven. It's not a place. It's a space. It's a reality. When Jesus says, stop, turn around, the reign of God is coming to you. The reign of heaven is close. In other words, the, the rule or the, the reality of God being the king is coming close to you now. Now, as the people um, who Jesus first said this to, this would have been, it's kind of strange for us, it would have been really exciting for them because they were currently under the reign of Rome. Rome, the most powerful but brutal empire almost the world has ever known. There were some people who would have had Relatives who used to own a vineyard or own a piece of land who were now bond slaves working for whoever owned it now because they had to sell it to get enough money to pay the heavy, heavy taxes that Rome would exact on all of the peoples that it ruled. So financially, politically, religiously, and some of them would have even lost relatives or lost their lives to Rome 
because Rome just ruled with an iron fist. And so when Jesus says, the reign of God is coming now, they're thinking, yes, this is going to overthrow Rome. And Jesus was doing things and saying things that they had never seen before. And so they're thinking, this guy actually might have the power and the authority to overthrow the Romans. And so they were getting really excited, and they had all these ideas of what kingdom would mean, and yet Jesus just didn't seem to be that interested in the stuff they wanted him to do. He, he, wasn't, he didn't go to Jerusalem, which was the center of Jewish life, their sort of political center, to, to start to amass an army that would then march on Rome and overthrow them. He was in Galilee, this sort of backwater town. You know, I don't, I don't have an, uh, an analogy for you in Ontario because someone will be offended, okay? So I won't say it, maybe. It's like, like, say, Toronto, a backwater town, you know? With a bunch of people who had no influence. They were not the important people. They were, he was hanging out with all these people who were sinners or sick or, like, people of, so like down on the social scale. This didn't look like any army that was going to overthrow Rome. Jesus didn't seem to be interested in it. And everything he taught them and lived out was like, this is a different kingdom than you think it is. And he goes on to explain what it looks like um, right after chapter four. He begins this thing called the Sermon on the Mount. These three chapters. And these three chapters need to be read in this context. Jesus begins to explain what his kingdom is like. It's not like what you think it is. Now I want you to stay with me on this because even if the passage is familiar to you before or you've never read it before at all, in this is where we find our purpose for life. He says this, blessed are, there's a whole bunch of blessed are, meaning these are people whose life is good, who lives in the kingdom. But then he actually lists a bunch of things of people whose life is not good. <laughs> blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled. You're the light of the world. A town on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus uses these two images of salt and light to describe the kind of people in the kingdom of God and the effect that they will have on the world around them. Salt in the ancient world was used for two things. It preserved something that otherwise would rot and it also brought the flavor out of things that were bland. And he says, listen, in the kingdom of God, you have a role to both preserve the world around you but also bring out the flavor in an otherwise bland existence. And then he says, you are the light of the world. You are the light that shines in the darkness, that helps people see, that gives people hope, all of the things that light does. He says, this is what life is like in the kingdom. You are salt and light. 
And he lists all of these conditions of people that otherwise would say, no, life, life isn't good for us. Actually, if we're being attacked or persecuted for what we believe or what we say, if we're, if we're um, having people who have wronged us, you know, and so we're having to show mercy to them because we've been wronged, or for people that are, that are poor, people that are mourning, Jesus says it's a different reality living in the kingdom. It's a whole new purpose for living. It's interesting about this whole idea of kings and kingdoms. Where does it start? You know, Jesus is talking about the beginning of his ministry. But it actually starts at the very beginning of the Bible in chapter 1. See, in the ancient world, when a king ruled a place, a king would obviously want to expand his kingdom, but he couldn't be in all of the places at once that he ruled. So he would set up images of himself in the lands and the places where he wasn't, but that belonged to him. And those images were meant to remind people, this is the king of this world. This is the king of this land. This is the ruler of this city. You are under his control. You are under his reign. This is who he is. The images of the king were meant to remind people that king owns this whole place. And at the very beginning of scripture, it says the human beings were made in the image of God. You ever read that before? What, is it, what, is it, what does that mean? Well, later on in the chapter one, the very first chapter of the Bible, it shows us the beauty and the creativity and the love of God, and it says he created human beings to be images of God and to rule, to rule actually the world. Now we're going to talk a little bit more about what does that mean. But the problem with human beings is that they began to rule the world in ways that didn't reflect actually who God was. Early on in scripture, actually, it says that they rejected him. And then there's this little story about these people who build this tower called Babel. It's kind of a weird story. They said, let's get together and build this huge tower, and we will make a name for ourselves. The tower was like this image of saying, no, no, we're not going to image God. We're going to image ourselves, and we're going to build our own kingdom. And from the beginning of the Old Testament, from that story, we actually see this, the Old Testament is the story of these two kingdoms, the kingdom of God in the kingdom of Babylon. Now Babylon actually becomes a literal sort of place, but actually Babylon is sort of metaphorical in the Old Testament for the kingdom of people who said, we don't want your kingdom, we want our own. We will live life our own way. And what's interesting, do you know what the values of the kingdom of Babylon are? Wealth, power, fame, beauty. And this is the story of humanity. Our whole lives wanting to build our own kingdoms, wanting to be our own rulers and saying, we do not want to image the way God views the world or the values of God. We will image the values we want for ourselves. And thus we have the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Babylon. And what's interesting, if you read Israel's story, eventually said God, God said, you love Babylon so much, just go there. And they get exiled in Babylon. And so when Jesus comes to the community of people around him saying, the kingdom of God is here, but it's not the values of the way you think the world should be. He was inviting them in to live according to a new set of values, according to a new purpose, to leave the kingdom of Babylon, of wealth and power and fame and money and the running around and around and around and come into the kingdom of God, which had a different set of values. And Jesus begins to explain what those values are. The Sermon on the Mount becomes the manifesto or the charter of how people in the kingdom of God are meant to live. 
And so now think about this. I want you to think about this, that Jesus, in a sense, is coming to us because our purpose in life is to image Christ to the world around us. That is our purpose in life. Now, I know that doesn't sound very exciting, but stay with me. That our purpose, the reason you were created, was to represent, to be an image of Jesus to the world around us. And the, the Sermon on the Mount is this manifesto of saying, well, what does it look like? What are the values of the kingdom of God? Well, look, look what it says. The poor in spirit. You know, there were people in the crowd who knew what it meant to be physically poor. We said the poor in spirit are those who, are, who know they have a need, right? Someone who has a, a need for literal food and water knows they need it, and they go and try to get it, and they'll ask anyone for it. Someone who is poor in spirit recognizes they need help. Isn't that funny? Strange that one of the first values of the kingdom of God was just to admit that you don't have it all together. Admit that you're trying for all this wealth, power, fame, beauty, but you don't have it all together. The meek. It says, blessed are the meek. What is a meek person? We sort of think a meek is like a sort of a weak or, or mute or this mouse or this doormat kind of a person. Meek are people who choose, the meek are cho those who choose not to use their power for themselves. The meek are those who power down not looking to power up, not looking to leverage what they have in their relationships, in their workplace. The righteous are those who do what's right even though it might cost them a lot. Money, time, reputation. The merciful, blessed are the merciful, those who give grace to others. This is what the kingdom of God, the people of the kingdom of God are like this. The pure in heart, those who basically try to have a clear conscience, which means they're regularly admitting the things they've done wrong and trying to make it right. The pure in heart. The peacemakers, not the peacekeepers. The peacekeepers are the ones who just try to avoid conflict and just say, no, no, everything's okay, everything's okay, just, I just don't want to know if things are bad. The peacemakers are the ones who go into the broken situations and saying, you know what, this thing needs to be reconciled. And then there are those who are willing to be with Jesus, to boldly associate yourself with Christ, even those others may look at you sideways and say, that's dumb. The beautiful thing about this manifesto of the kingdom is that Jesus didn't just teach it. Every chapter after this chapter, he lived it. This is the life of Jesus. someone who depended on the Father for what he needed, someone who was willing to forgive others, someone who did not use his power to power up and gain leverage, but actually used whatever power he had in the service of others. Jesus was the one who was the peacemaker who came to reconcile, bring people back together. And Jesus was the one who said, I will obey God, though it may cost me my very life. Jesus is the perfect representation of God, right? That's why he's the good news. Because human beings, we just couldn't image God properly, and so God says, okay, I'm going to send my son who will be the perfect image of me. He will live out the values of the kingdom of God so that someone will actually be able to see it in the life of a human being and say, oh, that's what we were meant to be. Right? Jesus isn't just this beautiful person that we look at and admire. He's a picture of the life that we are being invited into to live. That's the good news. 
is that God has rescued us from the going around and around and around in life looking for wealth and power and fame and beauty and said, I actually made you for something more. But I want to show you a picture of what it looks like so you can see that is a beautiful life. Jesus actually invites us. You know what it means to be Jesus' disciples? It means to be his apprentices, to actually learn from him. In the Mishnah, one of the earliest writings of rabbinic um, teachings, one of the rabbis had this saying that, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi as a disciple. Meaning like in these dusty roads, you're walking so close to him, he's kicking up dust, it's sort of covering you. It's kind of a gross, I know some of you OCD people are, that's yucky. It, It just means may the life of the one you are trying to learn from cover you and you become like them. The incredible thing about the kingdom of God is God is our king, but he's actually invited us to be his apprentices, to walk with him and to learn to be like him, to walk closely to him. That is the invitation, the purpose of your life is to walk closely with Jesus that you would become like Jesus. This is why it's good news, right? That Jesus has actually come to call us into that purpose to say, you were meant to walk with me and to become like me. And think about this. There's lots of people that have read the Gospels over the years. And even, you know, even if you don't even believe that Jesus was God, everyone looks at his life and says, that's a beautiful life. Right? The incredible truth is that you and I have invited to actually live life with him. It is the harder way, right? We look at that list and saying, man, I, I don't know if I could do all that. <clears throat> I don't know if I could admit my need. I don't know if I could power down and, and stop this race of trying to become more powerful and actually say, well, what I have in my hands is enough. And actually, am I using it in the service of other people? That's hard. I don't know. It's hard to be merciful, to show mercy to people who are being cruel to me, who have been unkind to me, who have inflicted wounds on me. It's hard to do that. It's hard to actually be a peacemaker. Have you ever tried to reconcile family members or friends in the workplace or whatever who are fighting with each other? It's hard to do. Why would we do it? Because it's the beautiful life we all want. We look at Jesus and say, that's a beautiful life. We have glimpses of it. Every time you've been able to do a little bit of it, don't you feel better at the end of it? It feels good in the moment to take revenge on someone who's bugging you, but it sours in your mouth. But to actually be gentle and kind and to give mercy and forgiveness always feels better the next day. You go to bed with no regrets. It's the more beautiful life. It's the purpose we were invited into. Remember we said last week that the gospel in three words, if we were to is Jesus is Lord. So this means, say, Jesus, you are the king. To receive the good news is to say, you know what? I'm done living for my own life, following the kingdom values of Babylon that the whole world has been following since his existence and has come up empty. You know those things are empty because many of you in this place could say, yeah, I've actually, I'm making more money than I thought I would ever make. Is it enough? No. Is recognition enough for you? No. You're only as good as your last good report. We live in a what have you done for me lately world. We all know that inherently wealth, beauty, power, fame, they're not enough for us. Jesus says, leave that kingdom. To call me Lord is to actually to be rescued. This is scary. It's like, I don't want anyone to be the king of my life. Too bad. Everybody has a king of their lives. You are living under the rule of someone or something. 
And the invitation of Jesus is leave the values of Babylon, power, wealth, fame, beauty, and live the life I've made you to live. That's our purpose in life. Now, many of us, have we've been working through this, having conversations with you saying, well, how do, okay, this sounds like good news, but how do I actually explain good news to other people? Like, how do I, I I'm not going to sit down and talk about the Basileia, or the reign of God. With, like, they're not even interested, my neighbors, my friends, whatever. Well, how did Jesus preach the gospel to you and I? He lived with us. He came to us. He was relationally present in our lives. We actually, Jesus actually lived out the gospel in front of us so we could see it. So you and I, first and foremost, before we say anything with our mouths, are meant to actually experience the gospel and live it out of our lives so that other people do what they did to Jesus, which is saying, can I talk to you for a second? Can I just be with you? I don't even agree with anything that you believe in, but I just love being in your home. We were at the Alpha Conference yesterday, and they were talking about the Alpha Course, which is just this course. We're actually going to run it in the fall. It talks about how, uh, just the introduction of the Christian faith. And there was a, one of the guys that uh, was coming, you know, to, to the Alpha Course. Like, he would, he would come and he would sleep during the sessions. Like, he would eat the food and fall asleep for the first four weeks. And one of the leaders was there was like, oh, my gosh, like, this guy really is not interesting. It's very gruff, very rude, not very sort of grateful for anything, but he would come every week. And so she said to him in the fifth week, he's like, hey, I sort of noticed that you kind of sleep during the talks, you know? He's like, well, so you know, he said, I, I've been divorced twice. He said, I eat alone every night. He said, it just feels nice to eat with other people who are so loving. That's why I keep coming. You know, by the time the next course, he had actually begun to follow Jesus. <laughs> It just speaks to the need that the whole world has. You know, we've lost this concept of the dinner table, the family table where we come together and experience life and fullness. The way we preach the gospel to the world is we live it. It becomes a part of our lives. And so here's what I want you to do. Just one next step. You know, you're never going to get away from a sermon without one next step. There's just, I listed a bunch of them. I don't know, maybe in your relationships, you think about your life, your workplace, your family, your neighborhood. Which one of these kingdom actions might God be calling you to display. There are some of you in here that just need to recognize your need and ask for help. Like you've been struggling through something, maybe a health thing or maybe a work thing or maybe a financial thing or maybe a marriage thing and you're struggling but you're not asking anybody for help. I can tell you if you're struggling with it and not asking for help, it's not getting better. That's why it's not getting better. <laughs> if you could have solved it yourself, you would have done it by now. And some of you just need to say, you know what, I need just to put up my hand and ask somebody else in this family for help. Maybe for some of you, you just need to mourn with someone. Like you're going, you, maybe you've been actually someone who's going through pain. And actually God just says, you know what, there's other people in your life like you. I want you to go mourn with them. Just be with them in their pain. You don't have to say anything to them. In fact, usually what we say to people in pain is terrible. We're trying to be good and it all just comes out like salt in the wound. This one is a chance to be light, not salt, okay? Maybe you just need to mourn with someone. For others, there's a step of obedience to do what's right, and it, it's going to cost you, and you know it. You know what it is, but you just need to do it. For others, you need to power down. There's a relationship where you've been struggling for your rights, maybe in an employment relationship, maybe in a family relationship, maybe in a marriage. 
And you just need to power down. You need to say, you know what? I'm done fighting for my rights in this thing. I'm going to choose not to use my power in my service. For others, it's a, a situation where you need to show mercy or forgiveness. Someone who's wronged you. And you could get them back. Or you could withhold love. Or you could withhold forgiveness. But this is an opportunity to show mercy. Maybe you need to make something right. You know, your heart's not pure because there's something you've done or something you haven't done that you know you need to and you just need to make it right, whatever that is, to do that. For others, you, you maybe there's people in your life who you know are fighting with each other. You need to seek peace. You need to help them reconcile. They can't do it themselves. They need somebody. And for others, maybe it's just to speak about Jesus to somebody you love without worrying about what they're going to think of you or how they're going to look at you. Worship team's going to come up and lead us. But here's what I know in this. This is the harder way, but it's the more beautiful one. It's the life, actually, that we've always wanted. And as we do it, we take a step. We begin to taste what it's like to leave the life of power and wealth and fame and beauty, saying, oh, actually, this is what I was made for. Do you receive the blessing this morning? From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is sent into our lives. And the name the Holy Spirit has given is our helper. And so would you feel the power of the Holy Spirit helping you do the thing that God has put on your heart to do? And even as you cry out and say, I cannot do this without you. Holy Spirit, just help your church. Help us to be the images of Jesus to the world around us that so desperately needs to see something beautiful. In your name we ask these things, amen.